I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program... Journalist Catherine Miles joins us to discuss her new book, Trilled, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. It's a story focusing on the death of two young college girls on the Appalachian Trail. The missteps made and malfeasance of investigators into the murders after they happened. And the man that Catherine believes was wrongfully accused of being behind the murders. It's a gripping tale about one woman's search to uncover the truth about the Shenandoah murders. And with that in mind, let's get right to it with Catherine Miles, author of Trail, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Catherine Miles, author of the book Trilled, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. And this is a rather interesting book. We'll get into it. Uh, but, it, you know, at first you think it's a true crime book, but I think there's a lot more going on with it. But uh, we'll get into that. How are you doing today, Catherine? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. So, Catherine, maybe you could give a little bit of your background before we get into the subject matter of the book, because uh, there, there's sort of a personal element to this book in a way. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I grew up spending a lot of time outside. And when I was in college, um, I had really discovered backpacking and backcountry camping as a way to really just sort of feel 
strong and empowered and, you know, process, you know, some previous trauma and um, went to grad school out east at the University of Delaware to do a PhD in what was ultimately um, environmental studies with an emphasis on writing and gender studies. And while I was there, I would spend a lot of my free time on the Appalachian Trail. And it was while I was doing those hikes, this was mostly in the mid to late 90s, that I learned about a series of murders that had occurred either on or just off the Appalachian Trail. And that really strongly impacted me both personally and professionally. I went on to become an environmental studies professor. I served full time um, for about 15 years at a little environmental studies called Unity College here in Maine, where I live. Um, these days, I write full time, both as a book author and an investigative journalist, and still teach part time in some low residency graduate school programs that are also focused on environmental writing. So if we could, this book is about the case of uh, Lolly, and I, I don't want to mispronounce names, but Lolly Winnens and Julie Williams. Could you give a little bit of background into who they were and the sort of tragic case? Sure. So Julie Williams grew up in a very sort of small knit Midwestern town, um, was, you know, part of a, a really strong and, and I think um, wonderful Catholic community there. Um, she was really, from a very early age, really interested in volunteer work and human justice work. She did a lot of volunteering. She was fluent in Spanish. Um, she was trained as a geologist by discipline. And in May of 1995, she arrived at this really wonderful outdoor leadership program called Woods Women to take a, a leadership course because she wanted to become a guide there. Um, that same month, um, another woman, Lolly Winans, also arrived. Uh, Lolly had grown up in Gross Point, Michigan, to a very affluent family, but it was also a family that was really troubled and plagued by abuse and some dysfunction. And so Lolly had really struggled her whole life to make sense of that, and she had kind of wandered a little bit. Um, she was a big Grateful Dead fan. She loved the fit, fish, um, you know, jam bands, things like that. And she had really. She, she was found kind of her. a not not to interrupt you, but the way you describe her, she sounds like the uh, the light of the party type person that lights up a room when she walks in. You know, everyone likes her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's like the the sun, right? And like everybody at a party, you know, always kind of wanted to be around her. She usually had like a Corona in her hand, and you know, she was you know just wicked smart, really funny, um, really warm, really outgoing. And so she had found her way to Unity College, um, the same college where I taught for 15 years, um, and had really found her way there. She had sort of dedicated herself to creating a wilderness program for um, other sexual abuse survivors. And so she had then arrived at Woods Women in May of 1995 to fulfill an internship requirement for her degree. She and Julie met by all accounts, it was love at first sight. And they had this really just intense, wonderful, romantic summer where they just really, you know, just fell in love with each other. Um, then they had basically an academic school year where they were living apart. Lolly had to go back to Maine. Julie moved to Vermont so she could be close. Um, and then in May of 1996, they were getting ready for the summer. They both had really busy work schedules ahead. They decided to move in together for the summer. And they decided that before all that got started, they would take one quick kind of easy breezy backpacking trip to Shenandoah National Park as like a, a little break, a little vacation before the, the mayhem started. Um, and that was ultimately how they met their deaths. So if we could, let's talk a little bit about the 
Appalachian Trail because I did not realize before reading this book, this is not the only instance where uh, bad news has uh, come upon people uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. Uh, now, that's not to say that, you know, everyone should fear for their lives when they're hiking the Appalachian Trail, but it, it does seem like there's more than a few incidents that have happened there, you know, involving murders. Yeah, and I should say, you know, it's it's been in existence for about 100 years. It's a 2,200-mile footpath that goes from Springer Mountain in Georgia and follows the spine of the Appalachian Mountains all the way up to um, northern Maine, um, Katahdin, which is the northern terminus. And, you know... Um, you know, I should say, you know, thousands of people hike this every year, right? And more years than not, there are no murders on the trail. And I think that that's really important to recognize. But there have been, um, in the past, I don't know, about 30 years, there have been 15 murders that have occurred either on the trail or just off the trail. Um, and when you think about wilderness areas and you think about, you know, who uses wilderness areas, that 15 starts to feel like kind of a big number, you know, a much higher number than it ought to be. And those murders have had a really strong impact on the hiking community, on the LGBTQ community, um, on, you know, people who identify as female or non-binary. And so in some ways, I think the murders have had an impact bigger than even their numbers suggest. Yeah, it's interesting. I think at one point in the book, you talk about meeting a, um, a trail worker and you have a very brief exchange with them. Um, and they say something about uh, because of the murders and, and you, you're like, oh, I had no idea. But um, th there's all these different cases, um, including, I think, the, the Molly LaRue case um, and others. Could you talk a little bit about that, that experience with that trail worker and why you included that in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was the first time I had really learned about Lolly and Julie. So as far as we can tell, based on the medical examiner's report, we believe they were killed on May 28, 1996. Uh, Lolly was 26, Julie was 24. Um, I was 22 that year, and that was the same weekend as my college graduation. And so I think between the graduation and moving out of my apartment and getting ready for grad school, I had completely missed what was really pretty pervasive national news about this murder, which was really, I think, high profile, particularly because it had occurred in a national park. Um, so, so flash forward about two years and, and I'm living in Delaware, working on my graduate degree, um, hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I had, you know, it was November, it was kind of creepy Blair Witch time of year on the trail. And um, I had been doing what, what, what hikers call a section hike, which is basically just a hike for a few days on the trail. And I had stopped um, for what I thought would be the night at, a, at one of the original shelters on the trail called the Thelma Mark Shelter, which is just this sort of three-sided Adirondack shelter where basically you can put your sleeping bag down and sleep for the night instead of having to set up your tent and stuff. And so I thought I was all ready to get settled in. But as you say, I met a trail worker there who was working on building a new shelter. And I had, you know, sort of bemoaned the loss of this historic shelter. And, and he had said very bluntly, well, you know, we have to tear down this original one. This is where the murders occurred. And, and that was the first time it had ever even occurred to me that murders could happen on the trail. And, and as you say, um, it was the double murder of Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood who had been killed there. Um, and, you know, just hearing about that was really, you know, I was just sitting right where it had happened. I was eating an apple. I was about to turn in for the night. 
I had no idea that something, you know, so gruesome and terrible had happened there. And it was when I returned home from that trip that I started doing research and I started finding out about these other murders, including the murder of Lolly and Julie. So what led you to the case of Lolly and Julie in particular? Like what what really uh, drove you uh, on your quest to figure out, what, you know, how did this happen and, and who was behind it? Yeah, you know, when I first learned about it, I think what really struck me was that these were two, you know, very strong wilderness leaders. I mean, not only were they, you know, physically strong women and fit and bold and brave and smart, but they were also really well trained as backcountry leaders. And, you know, they had done everything right. Um, and they had still been brutally murdered in a national park. So that really struck me, you know, as someone who you know, was building my skills as, you know, a backcountry participant, but wasn't nearly as proficient as they were. Um, And then in the fall of 2001, after I had received my PhD, I took my first college teaching job at Unity College. You know, and when I got there in 2001, there were about 500 undergraduates, there were about 30 faculty members, Lolly had been murdered five years earlier, but it was such a small, tight community. The alumni tend to stick around. Um, And so she was just so present on that campus um, that it really sort of was sort of another dose of of the significance of all of this. And, you know, getting to know her friends, getting to know her faculty members, getting to see firsthand just what an impact she had made while she was alive. And then what also what an impact her death had had um, really brought the case home and made it very personal for me. Could you speak a little bit to that sort of presence she has on the campus even after her her death? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, like you and I had just said, you know, she really was the life of the party, you know, and Unity was this wonderful experiential school where, you know, as faculty members, we were really strongly encouraged to be taking students out into the backcountry. Students were always leading trips in the backcountry. Um, you know, at the end of each semester, we'd have a giant campus-wide dance in the tavern um, where, you know, the faculty and the students would all be dancing together. And so it was very like collegial and close and intimate. Um, And so, you know, Lolly had had really gotten to know people there. Um, And so, you know, when she died, I think her loss was felt just really intimately. And when I got there, by the time I got there, um, the school has this large A-frame welcome center the fireplace there had been built in Lolly's memory and dedicated to her. You know, you'd walk the halls and you'd see photographs of dances or backcountry trips or things like that. And she'd be front and center, you know, smiling or have, you know, a group of people around her with her arms around them. And, and so she really was almost a mythic presence on that campus in the best possible way, which is to say she was very beloved, very respected and very, very missed. And it sounds like Julie was a bit more like the, the maybe the quiet type of the two. It's it, it seems like an interesting opposites attract type situation. And it, it seems like they, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about their relationship and then we'll get into uh, how John Ashcroft ties into all of this. <laughs> I can't wait to see you make that transition. too. Yeah, Julie, they really were sort of yin and yang. You know, I mean, Julie was also really funny. You know, her friends adored her. They loved spending time with her. But you're right that she was more reserved, um, you know, maybe a little bit more studious, maybe a little bit more by the book. Um, And I think that's part of why they, 
that attraction was so powerful is they really complemented each other in fantastic ways. I think Julie really grounded Lolly. And I think Lolly really brought Julie kind of out of her shell a little bit. And, you know, they both wanted nothing more than to be, you know, in a canoe on the boundary waters or with packs on their backs, like high up in the White Mountains. And so, you know, you take these two super fit people who love to be outside, really attractive, you know, really charismatic. And it really was just this dynamite relationship. And, and they sort of are, I mean, they're basically a couple, you know, but they're, they're sort of keeping it under wraps in some ways. Yeah, because this is 1995, 1996, right? You know, I mean, it's two years before Matthew Shepard would be killed. It's, you know, very much still the height of the AIDS crisis. You know, this idea of, you know, coming out is not something that really happened in terms of sort of like the national culture. And, and I think there were real serious questions in terms of safety, too. So while like their closest friends were well aware of their relationship and their co-workers at Woods Women, that, that summer outdoor program, they all knew that they were a committed couple. They definitely kept it under wraps when they were kind of just out and about in the world. So then you, you have this happen in, in May of 96, this, this tragic you know, murder. Uh, and then I guess uh, Attorney General Ashcroft comes along during the Bush administration. So there's a few years between there, I don't know if we can say anything about that, but what leads to John Ashcroft coming out and making this sort of announcement, you know, we, we found the guy and this is a hate crime. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about the sort of cultural moment of, of when that announcement was made. Yeah, so um, just a little bit of background so that the, it makes more sense. Um, so Lolly and Julie murdered May 28th, 1996. Um, there's a massive investigation that happens, you know, over the course of the next year, there's dozens of leads, including some of the park rangers who had worked the case. But by the spring of 1997, the case had really all but grown cold. And then in July of 1997, a young man named Daryl David Rice, who um, was, you know, basically just completely unraveling. He'd struggled with mental health issues his entire life. He'd just lost his job. He you know, by his own account, was smoking a lot of weed. And he assaulted a woman on a bicycle in Shenandoah National Park in July of 1997. And when that assault happened, the rangers and the FBI agents working this case immediately thought, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the guy who killed Lolly and Julie. Um, and so they really began to focus all of their attention on Rice at that point. Um, they kept trying to build a case, trying to build a case, trying to build a case against him. At its best, it was always barely circumstantial, very weak, not a lot of evidence at all. Um, but why, why were they so convinced that he was the guy just because of this one sexual assault or was there anything else going on? I mean, it's a very um, it's a very weak case. And, and I have posed this question to the Rangers and the FBI agents who worked it. Um, and that because they remain 100% convinced that Daryl Rice did this, that he murdered Lolly and Julie. But the only evidence they ever had was that Rice had been in the park earlier around say May 24th, May 23rd. His father lived right outside the park and he was an avid cyclist. So he would spend a lot of his weekends cycling in the park. Um, and then the only other piece of evidence they had against him was this very strange one minute phone call that he made. Um, Lolly and Julie were both very active journalers and in Julie's journal that fall, 
um, she had written down the name of a book that her book club was reading. And this book was edited by a woman named Janie Spar, who um, was the director of an LGBTQ uh, resource center in San Francisco. And um, that resource center had a number that was basically like 555-555-0001, right? Rice calls this number that's basically 555-555-0011, right? Which happened to be Janie Spar's private line, the direct line that could kind of circumvent the um, receptionist. She never gave that number out to anyone. That number was never in Lolly's or Julie's journal. Julie never met Janie Spar. However, the week after the murders, Daryl Rice called that backdoor number to Janie Spar's office there was like it registered as like a one minute call on his long distance and then he hung up what rice says is like rice is the biggest grateful dead fan you've ever met and rice says listen the first six numbers of this telephone number are the first six numbers of the grateful dead hotline which you know kind of pre-google is how deadheads used to like trade tapes and find out about shows and things like that first six numbers are the grateful dead hotline Last four numbers are the last four numbers of his office where he works. And, you know, he's like, look, I had been smoking weed all morning. I was trying to call the Grateful Dead hotline. I mixed up the last four numbers of the hotline in my office. I called this number. I had no idea what it was. It was clearly not the dead hotline. So I hung up. Um, according to the investigators, this was proof that he had somehow encountered Julie, that he had read her journal that he somehow, that she somehow had Janie Spar's telephone number, um, even though even Janie Spar said, I, there's no way she would have had this number. But for the investigators, that was the proof that not only had he killed Lolly and Julie, but he must have stolen something of Julie's that had this number on it. So then, uh, as I said, Ashcroft, uh, you know, makes this announcement as attorney general, and this is under the Bush administration, the 2000s. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that announcement and, and the sort of impact it had? Because, you know, this was the administration trying to show that they, they, you know, were concerned about the issue of hate crimes. And I think a lot of people, you know, probably at Unity College were thinking, uh, you know, oh, this is, this is, you know, some level of closure. It'll never bring Lolly or, or Jolie back, but, you know, we got the guy. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, and just the initial announcement Ashcroft made. Yeah, and it's exactly as you say, you know, um, so in, you know, obviously fall of 2001, September 11th occurs, right? And so, you know, you've got the nation completely shattered by the terrorist attacks. And in the months following, um, the number of hate crimes in this country had risen exponentially. Most of these were hate crimes against Muslim Americans or Middle Eastern Americans or people who looked Muslim or Middle Eastern American. And what you had was you had organizations like um, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU really putting a lot of pressure on this administration to show that they were willing to prosecute and be tough on hate crimes. The country had just passed brand new hate crime legislation that had been built out of, you know, murders, including Matthew Shepard's, including um, a woman named Rebecca White, who was murdered just off the Appalachian Trail and her surviving partner had pushed really hard for this hate crime legislation that would allow for basically what's called enhanced sentencing. So if you murder someone, maybe you'd get life in prison, but if you murdered somebody because of their gender, sexuality, or race, we can seek the death penalty now. So the, the punishment will be worse because it's a hate crime. So 
in the spring of 2002, um, the prosecutors in Lolly and Julie's case who are working for a district court in Virginia are getting ready to kind of go forward with the case against Rice. They know it's really weak, but they're going to give it their best shot. The Justice Department basically grabs the case out of their hands. And in April of 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft makes this very public nationally televised press conference. The day before he had visited Ground Zero, he had met with some of the first responders, he had met with the prosecutors in the previous World Trade Center um, terrorist attack. And now he comes forward with this press conference and he announces that an indictment has been made against Daryl Rice. He announces that this will be the first case in the nation's history to use this hate crime legislation. And then, as you say, he makes this very strange turn, this kind of pivot in his speech where he says, you know, by prosecuting Daryl Rice, by seeking the death penalty against him, will create closure for the Winans and the Williams family and those people who loved Lolly and Julie. And by creating closure for them, we will also create closure for this nation that is still grieving the loss of September 11th. It was this bizarre conflation of two things that had nothing to do with each other, but it was such a high profile announcement that, you know, as I say in the book, there were something like 1400 news articles that ran the week after. And at our little tiny college here in rural Maine, you know, we were just descended upon by the national media, many of whom had covered the case in 1996, and now we're back again, because now not only is this a double murder that occurred in a national park, but it's the first federal hate crime, and it's somehow this crime that the Bush administration sees as intrinsically linked to September 11th. So that just completely blew it up in terms of media presence and media attention. Um, and, and I think a lot of that attention still continues today. Now, if we could, one of the things that I think sets your book, apart from a lot of other true crime books, is, and, and I'm trying to be careful with how I word this, but I think a lot of true crime books can almost get very um, hagiographic when it comes to discussing the investigators into a case, whereas I think your book uh, takes a much more critical approach when it comes to, say, the National Park Service, how they dealt with this, how the FBI dealt with this. So maybe you could discuss what were the issues with investigating this case and the missteps that were made? Yeah, so in 2000, let me back up. In 2005, the federal government very quietly dismissed the charges against Dale Rice. And they did so using a legal concept called without prejudice, which basically means we're still really sure this guy did it. We're just not sure we can get the conviction we want. So we're going to suspend our case until we have more evidence and then we can bring it back. Um, so that occurred in 2005. It's almost and like think, a loophole for double jeopardy or whatever. <laughs> that's exactly how I would describe it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was so under the wire, you know, and under the radar that I think a lot of people, myself included, totally missed it. And so I think a lot of us were like, well, Rice was indicted. He must have been convicted somewhere along the line. He must be in prison by now, you know? And so flash forward to 2016 and the FBI makes this very public announcement um, looking for information that will lead to the successful conviction in the case of Lolly Winans and Julie Williams. And by then I had left Unity College and I was working as a trail correspondent for Outside Magazine. I just wanted to say real quick, that that must have been, that, that has to be a terrifying experience for Daryl Rice, because even though he's, you know, not in prison over this, 
at any time they're saying, well, we can come back for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, to this day, he basically has to live underground. I mean, he basically lives as like an anonymous homeless person because he's been so persecuted. Um, you know, and as I say in the book, if he is, in fact, innocent, and I don't think it's a huge spoiler if right now I say I think he, he is innocent. Um, you know, his life, it's not just that his life has been ruined, you know, I mean, he, you know, we all, the country owes him the same kind of debt that we owe people who have spent their lives on death row only to be proven innocent and exonerated and returned to society. I mean, this guy has basically lived in his own kind of prison, you know, because of this. Um, so anyway, so 2016, the FBI announces this. I'm working as a reporter for Outside Magazine. And my first thought is, wait a minute, they got the guy. Like, why, why is this even happening? And so I had pitched it as a magazine story to my editor. And at the time, I was really persuaded by what the FBI was telling me, which is, we know Rice is the guy. We're just lacking a little evidence. We really believe that, you know, increased technology relating to DNA testing is going to allow us to close this case. And so we agreed that I would do this story that I think the FBI thought was going to be a really positive sort of um, PR piece for the FBI. So they, after some negotiation, were very generous in terms of granting me access to their forensic lab at Quantico Marine Base. I spent a day at the murder scene with some of the investigators. And then I got home and I was kind of thinking about everything. And I was like, I had this like spidey sense, you know, and I was like, this doesn't add up. And so I started looking into some of the court documents and things like that. And that's when I began to realize not only how thin the case was against Rice, but but not only had there been missteps and mistakes, but there was outright malfeasance on the part of the national government that was literally just manipulating and distorting evidence to try to force this case against Rice. And once I realized that, what I had thought was going to be this 2000 word feature story for a glossy magazine became this 90,000 word five year odyssey that is this book trailed now. So, so let's talk about that issue of malfeasance. So one of the things that stood out to me, and I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I think there was this idea that Daryl Rice uh, did this uh, because he hated, uh, you know, lesbian, gay, LGBT people. Uh, and he was adamant, no, that's that's not true. And I think, you know, th there was sort of manipulation there going on uh, when it came to trying to pin that on him. That's exactly right. So, you know, as I said, you know, Lolly and Julie kept their relationship very under wraps to the point that their family members didn't even know about it. And they were very publicly outed the day of their funeral um, by a uh, minister at this Presbyterian church that Julie had been attending in Vermont. So literally an hour before their funerals, their families are discovering because it is front page news on every national newspaper. That's how their family um, discovered that they're in the same sex relationship. And, you know, what the families told me was, look, we didn't care, you know, like we would have embraced this with open arms, but this isn't the way we should have found out, you know, I mean, first of all, it was up to our daughters to tell us. And secondly, you know, having them outed, having it on the front page of the news, you know, especially on the day of their funerals was just so patently disrespectful and, and really just sort of politicizing them in a way that, that they had never asked for but so that kept that notion of this same sex relationship stayed very much at the forefront of the prosecution and, and is what allowed Ashcroft to 
seek the death penalty under these hate crime legislations. Um, and as Ashcroft said in that speech, and as would be repeated multiple times in court documents is, we have Daryl Rice on the record saying, I hate gays. That's how we know this is a hate crime. His defense team, um, several members of whom went on to found the Virginia Innocence Project, his defense team were like, wait a minute, this, you know, we've spent a lot of time with this guy at this point, and this doesn't seem right. Like his roommate, who's also his best friend, is gay. He has these other gay friends. Like he seems pretty like it's all good kind of a guy. So where are we even getting this? And they said, well, you know, we had a we had a, a jailhouse informant who wore a wire and he recorded Rice saying this. And his his attorney, Deirdre Enright, very smart human who ends up playing a very big role in this book, had said, well, OK, great. Could I just could I just get a copy of that recording, please? And she did. Um, and she sent it to a you know professional sound um, person who was able to enhance and then transcribe this entire recording. And basically what had happened was Rice had come back from an interrogation into the cell. And he said to his cellmate who was wearing the wire, you know, oh man, I'm so mad. And the cellmate's like, well, why are you so mad? And Daryl says, because they keep trying to get me to say, I hate gays. And the roommate and the, the, the cellmate says, wow, man, like that's bullshit. And Daryl's like, right, I don't hate gays. But what they did was they took just that one little sentence fragment, I hate gays, and took it completely out of context and used it as the basis for the first federal hate crime. And when I say malfeasance, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Were there any other aspects of the case that you think um, were mishandled or handled in like a really just, as you said, the word malfeasance comes up. Uh, do, do you think there's any other aspects of this case that brings that to mind that you think my listeners should know about? Yeah, and some of it I think is accidental and some of it is purposeful. When violent crimes happen in our national parks, they become the joint purview of the FBI and then also law enforcement park rangers. So there are two types of park rangers in our national parks. There's the interpretive rangers who kind of wear the Smokey the Bear hat and you know tell you what wildflowers there are and when you can have a fire and things like that. And then there are the law enforcement rangers who basically have all of the rights and responsibilities of a state police officer. It's a completely different culture from the FBI. The FBI is, you know, trained to investigate urban crimes, um, you know, terrorism, you know, racketeering, things like that. Um, they're not homicide detectives. And then you've got these park rangers who, you know, mostly are kind of looking for poachers and, you know, armed robbers and things like that in parks. So totally different cultures. And from the start, this investigation was a complete culture clash. So that led, I think, to some mishandling of evidence. Um, for was me, there also an issue, I think you mentioned in the book, where I, I think the FBI was more used to sort of like urban cases. So this was kind of out of their expertise in some ways? Yeah, you know, and if you look, you know, all of these these federal law enforcement officers go to the same training facility, um, which is down outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And if you look, if you go to those trainings or if you look at the handbooks and things like that, when they're taught how to investigate a homicide, everything they're taught doesn't make sense in the backcountry. So, you know, first thing you should do is secure the door take measurements of the room where the murder, you know, occurred, interview the neighbors, you know, I mean, none of that makes sense in a wilderness setting. So the FBI definitely really struggled. 
the park rangers, I think, felt more conversant and comfortable, but they were also under this tremendous amount of pressure to like prove that their park was safe. So Lolly and Julie's bodies were discovered on the evening of June 1st, a Saturday. And it got reported back by Sunday morning to the superintendent of the park that um, that this double murder had occurred. And I should say, both women were bound and gagged. Their arms were duct taped behind their backs. Um, they were stuffed in their sleeping bags and their throats were slit. The first story that the park told internally was that this was a bear attack, which is beyond ludicrous and offensive. Um, and then the park said, well, Probably this was a, a murder-suicide, which again is fundamentally impossible given how the bodies were found. But the park was like, we're gonna call it a murder-suicide. We're gonna keep it under wraps. Um, we're not gonna release this information either to park goers or to the media until the media discovers it on its own. So for for you know, basically three days, you know, you've got thousands of park goers streaming in, you've got Appalachian Trail through hikers going through. You know, you've had another murder that had occurred just outside the park this spring, very similar, involving a young woman. And the park is refusing to admit that this has occurred. And that's another one of those sort of missteps I just think is not defendable. I, I was going to say, I mean, not not to like compare this to to a movie at all, especially like the, the kind of movie I'm going to compare it to. But it reminds me of, uh, you know, the movie Jaws, where the shark's killing all these people. And you have the mirror saying, well, no, we can't shut down the, the, the big beach fair or whatever we're having, you know, and it's like they they really were like, this is a political problem for them in some ways. I think Jaws is a great <laughs> analogy to this. I see it, too, you know, especially because there had been this other murder just weeks before of another young woman right outside the park. They had no reason not to believe that there was a serial killer at work and in in the if not in the park then in the very near vicinity of the park and to me it's just beyond careless and i guess there's also this issue of daryl rice i don't think there's dna evidence connecting him to this no they uh there is dna that was found at this crime scene um it was repeatedly tested against daryl rice at no point was there any similarity to be found there is no physical evidence whatsoever that ties Daryl Rice to the crime scene or to Lolly and Julie. The medical examiner was very firm in determining that they were killed on May 28th. Daryl Rice was back in Baltimore the morning of May 27th. He wasn't even in the park. Um, there is another suspect that I name in the book whose DNA cannot be ruled out because it is so profoundly similar to the DNA that was found. Um, and for reasons that I spend more than a few pages on in the book, you know, the FBI was not willing to really consider him as a viable suspect. Can we talk about the person that you consider to be the best suspect in this? I, I don't want to spoil the book, but he's a figure known as Mark Ivonitz. Could you talk Ivonitz, about him a right. little bit? Yeah. So uh, in 2004, uh, Mark Ivonitz, uh, who had um, sexual fetishes that would haunt your dreams if you went down that road in any kind of depth. He had kidnapped this young woman, um, a 15-year-old named Kara Robinson. He kidnapped her, brought her back to apart his apartment. He was into like all kinds of like BDSM kind of stuff. And so he had, you know, really brutally sexually assaulted her, um, handcuffed her to his bed. In the middle of the night, he fell asleep finally. And she heroically and miraculously managed to get just enough of one of the handcuffs undone to kind of 
be able to kind of release herself and flee. Um, and she was able to get to the police and tell them where he lived, what had happened. And that prompted this high speed multi-state chase. Um, and as the FBI, or I'm sorry, as the state police were really bearing down on him in, in Florida, um, he took his own life with a handgun in his car. Um, along the way, he had called one of his sisters and kind of told her what was happening. And she had said, you know, how many times have you done this? And he said, you know, more times than I can remember. So he commits suicide. The FBI and the Virginia State Police go back to his apartment. And what they find there is just like this horror show onto itself. He's got like boxes of women's hair and panties and notes on women he's stalked and all kinds of like sex toys and kind of torture devices and all of this sort of stuff. Um, so the FBI begins looking at him in other cases. Lolly and Julie were two of eight murders that occurred in this very rural part of Virginia over the course of about 18 months. Um, they were all women. They're, they had a lot of similarities, which has had led profilers to say like, this is absolutely a serial killer who's working here. Um, the state police and the FBI were eventually able to prove beyond any doubt that Ivanets had been responsible for three of these murders. They had started then to say, logically, well, maybe then he was responsible for the other five, too. And then for reasons that have never been explained to me, a senior official at the FBI shut down that examination, which was by then a task force, which wasn't just looking at these other crimes, but was looking at Ivanets for murders, especially against young women that had occurred across the country and over the course of, of about 15 years. Um, some of those cases still unsolved. People still say they really think that Ivanets had, had been responsible for those as well. There's, there's no small number of people who say that Ivanets will sometime eventually be proved to be one of America's most prolific serial killers. But, but any investigation into him right now has formally stopped. So we don't know if he killed three women or 30 women at this point. It, it, it's interesting when we get into to Mark Ivanets um, and, and just these murders in general, uh, I noticed that you bring up another case and you sort of, I, I think, use this to, to make some points about how cases are handled. Uh, you mentioned the case of Carrie Steiner, um, who is the Yosemite Park killer. And that's a very, very interesting case because, I mean, dude is really weird, but it seems like they didn't initially think he was the guy, even though he was right under their nose. How do you sort of use that case to make a point in this book? Mm -hmm. So he had killed three women um, who were visiting Yosemite. And um, in some ways, it was a very similar murder, certainly in the sense that it was incredibly gruesome. Um, so investigators, again, a combination of state police, National Park Service Rangers, and the FBI are now investigating this murder of three women. Um, and so they started interviewing potential suspects, including people who had worked at this lodge at Yosemite where these two women were, these three women were staying. Um, they interviewed Stainer and Stainer gave them reason to both doubt his testimony and also investigate him further. But by then they were so convinced that they already knew who the perpetrator was that they really weren't even listening to any other potential suspects. They were just kind they of- They were going suffering from emotions. confirmation bias. <laughs> exactly. And they were very vocal with me and very open and honest, I think, to their great credit, you know, because this is not something to be proud of. And, you know, they said to me, look, we totally missed it. We were so blind because we were so sure we already had this guy that we were completely ignoring and ruling out other viable suspects, including Stainer. And so he went on 
to murder at least one more woman, you know, because the FBI was basically completely ignoring him at that point. And when I talked to some of those agents, you know, they were like, I'll go to my grave regretting this. I'll go to my grave being haunted by the fact that, that I did. I let this confirmation bias, right, where I believed I was right. And I was so sure I was right that I was going to funnel every other truth through this, this belief that I missed what was standing directly in front of me. And I think that's exactly what happened in this case with Lolly and Julie as well. There were just a few more things I wanted to cover here briefly. And, and one that one thing I wanted to cover was uh, you ended up contacting Ann Burgess, uh, this nurse, nurse who uh, people will know her from the show Mindhunter. One of the characters in that show is based on her, the David Fincher TV series. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you reached out to Ann Burgess and what insights you got from her. As you say, she uh, is a professor of uh, forensic nursing, and she um, she's now well into her 80s. Um, you know, when she kind of came of age as an academic in the early 60s, um, was focusing on um, rape survivors and rapists and what kind of leads people to rape. Um, the FBI had just founded their behavioral and analyst unit, um, and they had asked her to come down and consult on a case. And this is, these are the folks who are on Mindhunter. You know, these are the fictionalized characters of Mindhunter. She got down there and basically was like, like what, what's your system here for interviewing serial killers and coming up with things? They, they had no sort of scientific methodology. They were basically, and if you've seen the first season of the show, you can kind of see it. They were basically just driving around and talking to serial killers and being like, oh, that's interesting. But what to do with all of that data you know, they weren't sure because they weren't really trained as social scientists. So she basically codified all of the data for this unit um, and has since become one of the leading experts on violent criminals and violent crimes, you know, particularly in terms of motive, in terms of whether crimes are organized versus disorganized. Um, I had seen some work she had done on some other cases and um, I emailed her. It was right at the height of Mindhunter, like, fandom. And so I thought there's no chance this woman is ever going to get back to me, but she did. She's still a professor at Boston College and she invited me to come down. And um, she had heard about this case and she had worked with John Douglas, which is another name some of your listeners may know. And, and she agreed to help me out. And so, you know, we presented the case to some of her advanced forensic psychology students. She agreed to kind of look at things along the way. And she, she was one of several invaluable resources that really brought the expertise that I needed to try to be able to unpack this case in a meaningful way. Was there anything in your interaction with her that really stood out or, or you thought, oh, I never thought of it that way. And, and it maybe gave you a new perspective on things. I think for me, it was just her real understanding and almost appreciation of the criminal mind. You know, um, one of the things that investigators talk a lot about are organized versus disorganized crimes. A disorganized crime is sort of a crime of passion. You probably didn't plan it ahead of time. It tends to be really sloppy. Um, organized crimes are serial killers, serial rapists, people like that. And they're, they're really good at what they do. Um, and they, you know, know to change up their MOs. They know to change up what they're doing to elude capture. Um, and her and appreciation is the wrong word, right? She, she knows these are bad people, but, but her just constant curiosity about how their minds work and the choices that they make was really fascinating. I, I like that. that. 
I was going to say, I like that quote that you, you have of her in the book where she says, crime is never senseless from the criminal's point of view. And I think that sort of summarizes what you mean. She's trying to sort of figure out, well, why are they doing these things? That to them, there has to be a reason. Exactly, right? Any, you know, arguably, certainly the majority, if you talk to the majority of people who have murdered, at that time, in that moment, they felt like they were completely justified in murdering, you know, and, and you know, and I outline kind of some of the reasons why people think they're justified in murdering along the way. And, and I think it's understanding, if we want to understand crime, if we want to understand why, for instance, you know, mass shootings keep happening in this country or whatever it is, we have to understand what is happening in the minds of the people who are doing this because they think they're justified. They think it's okay for them to do what they're doing. And if we don't understand that and we don't understand why they think it's okay, we can't stop it. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon was uh, th there's an interesting section of the book where I think you're you're corresponding or speaking with uh, Terry Gents, the, the Klein Falls Axe uh, attack survivor, and she says something very telling. She says, far too often women are prey in our culture, and there are more guys than we'd like to admit who go out in the wilderness to hunt them. And, you know, this sort of gets into the broader picture of the book of how we sort of understand wilderness, how we uh, sort of put like a, a, a gender thing into how we look at wilderness, if that makes sense. Could you speak a little bit uh, to that and what Terry Gents sort of meant by that uh, really chilling sort of quote that you include in the book? Yeah, and, and I should say happily for all of us, this is a very small percentage, you know, and I certainly don't want to make any sort of blanket statements here. But it is true that there is a small subset of mostly white heterosexual men who really do believe that the wilderness is their territory and their purview. And that, first of all, rules don't apply there. And that secondly, if someone I, is... Real, not, not, not to interrupt you, but real quick, I do think that's almost... I think there is a cultural element to that, though. It, we're, we almost view... Uh, the wilderness is being like the, the man's territory, the, the last frontier of the rugged individual man. So it, it, in a way, I think it it is sort of pervasive in the culture, that sort of um, picture that we're given of what wilderness represents. Yeah, yeah. And I always like to qualify it by saying the overwhelming majority of men who are in the wilderness do not believe this and do not behave this way, but some do, right? Um, you know, and then the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that if you look at a lot of these wilderness crimes, one of the defenses that people who have been arrested for them use is what they call, they call a provocation defense. They say, look, I was out minding my own business in the wilderness and there were these two women and they were kissing in the wilderness. And I was so grossly offended and so grossly just, I don't know, fill in another word there, I don't even know what it would be, that I had no choice but to kill them because how dare they be sexual and in love in my wilderness, right? Um, and that, that, that defense has happened enough that it's not a fluke, right? And so I think that's that idea of ownership. And it's why entire sets of the American public, whether it's, you know, Black people or non-binary people or queer people or, you know, fat people say, we don't get to be in the wilderness, you know, like we don't get to be there because it's not ours. And, and, and we're not even represented in ads. We're not welcome. We're harassed when we're there. And one of the things that I really want to call attention to in this book is just how pervasive those feelings are and how, how many people feel 
disenfranchised from our public places in this country. I want to I want to stay on that point for a second because I mean I obviously I have I would have a blind spot on that because I, I'm a white male so I I don't experience those same feelings. What what sort of feelings have you experienced out in the wilderness before or what what do you think some of the experiences of uh, people from maybe marginalized communities are when it comes to the wilderness? Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, some really significant harassment that is either racially or sexually motivated. You know, there's been a series of articles in the past few years. Um, Outside Magazine did a big expose about five years ago that was looking at instances of sexual harassment and sexual assault in national parks. Um, And then you also just sort of have this culture, like if you pick up a glossy magazine and you look at the ads and the people who are featured for the stories, they tend to be really fit white guys. And so if you're, you know, a full figured Latinx non-binary person, you just don't even see yourself. And not only do you not see yourself, but the other people experiencing the wilderness don't see you. And so then when they actually see you out there, they're like, what are you doing here? You know, and you're like, ah, I actually don't know what I'm doing here, you know? And so it's like, it's almost become this kind of vicious circle that we haven't really unpacked. We're not representing a lot of socially subordinate groups in these wilderness settings. And so they don't feel welcome. And also we're not representing them. So some people believe that they're not welcome. So tying this all together, I guess the the big themes of the book are on one hand, you have, uh, I think this issue where there are people that don't feel represented um, by the wilderness and and maybe they're even, um, they have fears of being out in the wilderness uh, because of that. and then you also have this wrongful indictment of Daryl Rice. Do you think there's a connection between the two big themes or, or how would you sort of tie it all together? What do you want listeners to really get out of the two uh, big themes that, that come together in the book? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, w- one of the ways that I tried to set up the book was to lay out the case against Rice as objectively as I possibly could. And then to also lay out the case against Avanitz and frankly, some other people too, who at some time have been FBI suspects so that readers could maybe jump in, you know, and, 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 and help move this case along. It's a completely cold case as far as the FBI is concerned. They think Rice did it. They're not really doing anything. And so I would love to see, you know, sort of a crowdsourced response to this. But I also think that we need to really call attention to these sorts of crimes because they keep happening. Um, And again, until we understand why they keep happening, then the wilderness really is not a safe space for entire groups of people. You know, and as somebody who's an environmental studies professor, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the wilderness, that both breaks my heart and enrages me that we can have these public places, but we can have entire swaths of the American public who don't feel safe or don't feel like they're allowed to be in these public places. And to me, that's almost kind of like a de facto segregation that that really just needs to be unpacked, you know, until we actually have equal access to the wilderness. Yeah, and I, I think ultimately in some ways, uh, Trilled is almost the, the story of, um, I would say a, a double injustice and maybe a, a, a third injustice if I can for a second. So you have, um, you know, the, the deaths of two women 
what seems like a, a wrong, wrongful indictment, the wrong guy got got fingered by the FBI, Daryl Rice. And I think there's also an injustice in, you know, people who are interested in this case, like yourself, uh, the, the truth hasn't really been revealed yet. And I, I think there's an injustice in that. So to me, it's a story of uh, different types of injustice that work in our society. I really appreciate you saying that. I wish I could get a blurb of you on the back of the book because I feel like um, it's really nice to hear that reflected back from you because that really does get at what my goals and my aims of the book were. So so thank you very much for that. And, and the last thing I wanted to mention in, in regards to your own sort of looking at this case, did, what, did it become sort of like an obsession figuring out um, who did this for you or, you know, um, I don't like using the word obsession, but what, what do you think of, of using that term to describe how you got into the case? Yeah, you know, it's really funny because when we were going back and forth at Algonquin, my publisher, about the subtitle for the book, the word obsession or obsessed kept coming up and I kept pushing back and I was like, that's, you know, I'm not obsessed and you'd never call John Grisham obsessed. And But then when I think about the like sometimes utterly ridiculous lengths that I go to in this book um, and over the course of four years, there's one moment in the book where I'm trying to prove the time of death and this forensic anthropologist is like, well, if you really want to do it, go get like a bone in shoulder roast and let it rot in your backyard. And I do, right? Like I've, I've got rotting meat in my backyard. So um Obsessed is probably fair. Like, I don't love that word, but I mean, this, you know, this story completely consumed me and was far more than a full-time job for four and a half years. And even though the book is out, I continue to work with the Innocence Project on this case and it still takes up a ton of my time. So um, if dedicated is not strong enough of a word, then I guess I will, I will accept obsessed. <laughs> so then in that regard, and I'll let you go after this, but being consumed by this case, what do you think you got out of the end of this journey? Because I think it was a journey for you. So what what did you get out of it? And then also, what do you hope listeners get out of this conversation and understanding that journey that you went on? Yeah, you know, and it was a really hard emotional journey. It was, I knew it was going to be hard and it was harder than I even thought it was going to be. Um, and there were times where I was really like, I just can't do this because it's literally sort of like destroying my emotionality and any ability I have to be a productive human. Um, but what I kept coming back to was, first of all, this amazing story of Lolly and Julie and being able to pay homage not only to these two really incredible individuals, but to this really wonderful love story too. You know, being able to tell that and somehow be able to preserve and share part of their legacy felt really meaningful. Um, but, you know, while their case is unique and I think extraordinary in some ways, it's also really kind of emblematic of a much larger problem that we have in this country. We have 250,000 cold murder cases in this country. You know, the closure rate for wilderness crimes is the lowest of all crimes. We have a backlog of untold number of rape kits who have never been tested. And, you know, if I can somehow move that needle just a little bit so that there's more closure or maybe more accountability for law enforcement agencies like the FBI who have really had a free pass since they've been created, then I feel like I've done some good, you know, and that's what we all ought to be doing every day, right? Is kind of going to bed feeling like we made the world a little bit of a better place. And if this book can do that, then I feel like it was worth it for me. Well, Catherine Miles, I want to thank you again and let my listeners know if you could uh, how they can get a hold of the book. I'm assuming uh, the best place to go is independent bookstore and uh, purchase it. 
That's a man after my own heart. I love independent bookstores. I will say that if your listeners like listening, um, the actress who read the audiobook, uh, Gabra Zuckman, is an amazing um, audiobook reader. She also did Michelle McNamara's All Be Gone in the Dark. And so if listening, um, that's definitely something to check out on Audible or other sources like that, too. Thank you again, Catherine Miles. It's been a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Miles, author of Trill, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. My apologies for the lack of shows released in the past two weeks. I've been dealing with some other concerns recently, but rest assured, we're back in the saddle and I should be releasing a few extra episodes this week. Also, on the Patreon page, we have a new series with C. Derek Varn, where we'll be doing dives into current events and other topics that interest us. You can catch that at the $5 tier and above on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jerry Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.